You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 384, Radiohead and Manic Street Preachers, they're cool. Muse and Ash, they're not cool. Wait, who decides? Going to a Lauren Hill gig, you'll miss the last train. And 50 years after the death of Ina Blyton, can we forgive all the racism, sexism and xenophobia? It's all coming up after Ash and Shining Light.
Another one of those bands who've been with us far longer than I remembered uh, formed 26 years ago in 1992 and uh, there followed an absolute parade of hit singles and albums. Uh, This is from 2001, number eight on the UK Top 40, Ash and Shining Light. Ash were the first band I ever saw, my first big rock band, which I saw without a parent. (laughs) My best friend's mum drove us and sat upstairs in the venue of which I'm now a trustee, rather sweetly. And we we, we were downstairs, and Ash were doing a small warm-up tour for their new album, Free All Angels, from which that is released. And uh, their previous album had not been a huge success after their debut, Mm -hmm. 1977. And they said afterwards, they got fans to vote on the internet of where they were going to play. And fortunately, Charlotte Hadley, who was their guitarist at the time, has extended family in Hastings. So basically, (laughs) everybody got on the internet and rigged it so that that they could all come down. And... um, you know, I was saying, you know, so apologies to anyone who's listening that, that you know disapproves of that. But you know, the, the, it was 16, 18 years ago. The moment has passed, and, um, <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was great. But they were playing these little venues, and they said afterwards, hmm. uh, sort of a few months later, that they didn't know at that point whether or not Free All Angels was going to be a success. And they were basically at the point in their careers where if Free All Angels didn't do particularly well, those were the sort of venues they would play for the rest of their career. Mm. Whereas if it did do well, then that really was a warm-up tour. And actually, Free All Angels, seven singles off that, including that, and it was enormously successful. Mm. And they went on to, to a, you know, to a, to a reasonable level of success again for some years. But no, I always have a huge affection for Ash. First, the sort of rock band I saw, first rock band T-shirt I saw, I was so sad when my ash logo the, the white the white kind of rubber sort of logo finally cracked oh. after too many wears and i had to get rid of it but no i enormous fan of that and that whole album and the it was one of those early technology things where it had a cd-rom with it they were all the rage back in those days to go back to our our, our, our primitive informative mm. internet sites we talked about in mm. a podcast passim and um you could it had a video editor on it and it had <laughs> it had the videos to some of the singles and you could clip out different bits and put your own music over the top and it had loads of put your, the, your own choice hmm. of ash music over the top i wonder if it still works i spent many a happy hour editing my own ash videos as a nerdy 16 year old I'd like to have a go at that now, frankly. It was a lot of fun. Yes, I would. I. It was great. I wonder if it still works. Welcome to the podcast from the Parish Council. It's episode 384. I'm Terence Stackham. And, oh, yeah, it's going to be another kind of smarmy, oily intro, I'm afraid. Oh, man. Okay. I'm sorry about this. Yes, she's our shining light. It's Juliet Harris. Well, do you know I've been called far worse, so thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Hello, a good evening where we are, but good morning, mm. afternoon, evening mm. or night to everybody else. Now, I think it's fair to say that, Ash, despite mm. 18 top 40 singles, they're not kind of... Loads, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, it's more lot, than 18. I would have predicted, yeah. Um, they're not revered or at least not held in such high esteem or affection as mm. groups such as Radiohead or the Manic Street Preachers. Indeed there is this weird divide. On one side of the barrier mark cool, you have bands who've been denied entry into the cool lounge, bands like Ash, I'd say Muse, Travis, Stereophonics. For some reason they're not venerated. Yet on the other side of the cool barrier Elbow, Manic Street Preachers, Radiohead, they're all classed as sort of in, admirable, the cat's pyjamas, one might say. Now, mm. why is this, Jules? You're a young influencer, a tastemaker. <laughs> Lol, thanks. <laughs> who, who makes these decisions? 
Well, it's interesting, isn't it? And actually, all pretty much all of those bands you mention are particularly the Ash, Muse, Travis generation. Mm. Are bands that I pretty much grew up with, and when I was about fifteen or sixteen, they were they were quite they were really quite successful in my indie circles. And I I wonder if when you say who decides if they're mm. cool, we are only just now coming out of the age when the NME were the arbiters of cool. And when oh. I was a teenager, and I and I would say that these bands are prior to that age. So I was, let me point this out. I was I was 16 in 2000. That's when mm. I turned 16. And at that point, Ash had done very. We were, were about to do very well with Free All Angels and 1977, and to some extent, Nuclear Sounds were very much loved and seen as really cool. And Muse released Showbiz, I think, around that time because my be- one of my best friends at school bought it like the week it came out or something. I've still got Muscle Museum as a CD single somewhere. So, so we were really in at mm. the ground floor for Muse and we were sort of there at the beginning for a lot of those bands i wasn't i think i had the first travis album i might have bought that and the second album at the same time the man who and i wonder if the enemy and and select and and melody maker which were all still going at that point mm. i wonder if they were displeased by the fact that bands become successful and not just indie level successful but i would call it radio 2 level successful <laughs> i remember drive i remember driving up to a university open day with my dad and it was when free all angels had come out and was doing very well and they played one of the latest singles which i didn't think was particularly mm. good called candy that was the weakest i think that was at the point where you thought can you stop releasing singles please <laughs> um yes i know that this record is enormous and and is selling everywhere but you know almost every song is a winner but sadly not this one i mean it was it was a you know a hugely successful record but um it was it was apparently taken from a t-shirt worn by hell's angel apparently which is quite cool i think but oh, there were only six singles and one was released in australia so i have slightly overstated it but still i heard it played on radio 2 by ken bruce and <laughs> and and the travis for example they became a sort of a radio 2 band with the from the man who onwards the invisible band was very much a radio 2 record the stereophonics as well they started off very edgy their first album which you know one of the the local boy in the photograph about about a, a chap that committed suicide a thousand trees is about sexual abuse amongst a sport you know mm. by a sports coach in a small community they were quite a they were quite an, you know i really liked that first mm. album i thought i think it was great i think it was word gets around i think it was called and then all of a sudden they went massive and they had, and all of these bands had an album which some, suddenly catapulted them into the big time and then they started doing you know playing sort of big stages on glastonbury and it's almost like they're not seen as cool anymore because they've made that big step. And actually, you could argue that the Manic Street Preachers are similar. They've been going for so long that they are now a Radio 2 band, and to mm-hmm. some extent, Elbow are. But I wonder if it's to do with success coming too soon, maybe, and the Manics and, and, and Elbow sort of, and, uh, sort of slogged for a long time before they had a bit of a breakthrough. And, and I, I don't know. The Manics had a far sort of grittier kind of start didn't they with all the richie stuff and um I, I don't know there's 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 just something that like you say it's impossible to know who decides but there is some sort of line and muse for example when muse first started they sounded very like early radiohead and jeff buckley you would not in a million mm. years say that muse sounded anything like that now in fact muse have gone full on 
you know, hysterical queen style, <laughs> style, willy, 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 wee type rock with extra side, side mm. theories, uh, you know, side, or, side helpings of conspiracy theories about aliens. I mean, I don't like Muse anymore. And I was, you know, I was, a, I clung on to Muse for ages because they meant a lot to me in my youth. But it's, it's interesting, isn't it, how these bands, all of a sudden, they're, they're not cool anymore. Having said that, Travis did 20 years of The Man Who at the Brighton Dome earlier this year. And the cheapest tickets I could get, them having been on sale for not that long, were 50 quid right wow. at the back of the venue. It really... And, and Gomez, bring it on, 20 years, mm. that sold out completely at the door, which is 1,800, and it was all seated. So, I mean, it's pretty... So, I don't know who decides these things, but maybe when a band becomes more successful... Mm. There is an element of this, more, as, as, as you know, now no longer our friend Morrissey runs saying, <laughs> we hate it when our friends become successful, particularly when they're northern and then it's even worse. Um, they, um, they, and I think what comes with that is they become very successful and people go and get a bit resentful. And once you, you catapult into the A-list, no matter how much you resist it, your music becomes more liable to commercial considerations, which means whether or not you mean to, whether or not you, you know, how much you try to, to to resist it, I think it levels out. I think I think it becomes more mainstream. You start producing music to appeal rather than doing what you did in the first place, which is what caused your appeal. So so I wonder if 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 it does take the artistic edge off acts when they become very successful. Well, there is this ridiculous snobbery about hating it when people do become successful. Of course, there are there are some bands who move between the cool and uncool true. zone. Very true. Coldplay for a while were seen as having sold out to the mainstream, the the, the Ken Bruce factor, yeah, you might exactly. call it, as you, yeah. you would say, almost too popular. Um, and you can make the same argument for Blur and Suede, but then they all seem to have found their way back into the respected field. Uh, perhaps it's something to do with longevity, I, I don't know. But it's always been this way, though, because bands have always been accused of that crime of selling mm, out selling as I out, think yes. you were inferring I can remember in the schoolyard in the early 70s it was terribly impressive if you carried around Lindisfarne's Fog on the Tyne album it was loved by hippie mm. culture they had long hair beards and they sang mystical songs about Lady Eleanor and the clear white light mm. but then a few years later, they had a novelty hit single with Paul Gascoigne and they became a sort of Knowles house party or guest of the two Ronnies type of yes. group that made you squirm with embarrassment. So it's a rocky road, that, that sort of highway of cool. It is, it, is, it is funny, isn't it? Because Elbow are now, of course, very successful and sell a lot. But part of Elbow's appeal, I think is the wonderful Guy Garvey. And I, my recommendation of the week is listening to Guy Garvey's Six Music Show on a Sunday afternoon. It's mm. brilliant. It's it's so He's so adorable. And he makes good choices. And he's really open about his family. And it's just a, it's a delight. It's a total treat. And to be honest, I would follow Guy Garvey to the end of the world, pretty much. So, so there are some bands who somehow managed to stay likeable or in the case of Blur and Damon Albarn they managed to stay artistically relevant I think mm. and, they, and and Albarn was sensible enough to know when Blur had run its course 
I, I, I think they have run its course after the magic whip, and as a lifelong, a virtually lifelong Burr fan, it makes me very sad to say that. But um, mm. he's recently come back with the Good, the Bad, and the Queen, who released mm. one album, which appeared to be their only ever album in <laughs> 2007, and they're back with another one. They originally were called the Good, the Bad, and the Queen because that was the name of the album. They didn't want to bother to have a name, so uh, that <laughs> album also has a song called the Good, the Bad, and the Queen on it. Hence the be- the best radio announcing ever. That was the Good, the Bad, and the Queen by the Good, the Bad, and the Queen from the Good, the Bad. <laughs> and the Queen so uh, so, but but you know Damon Albarn's always trying new things he always seems to be experimenting with new things um, occasionally being a bit noxious whilst, whilst doing so but he seems to stay on the right side of good if you see what I mean and so I, I don't know but may, maybe it is either having success very soon or the success then blunting what you were originally good at mm. now Lauren Hill is in the middle of a massive tour if you're mm. if you're going We'll tell you why you should take a good book with you. Um, right after this, this gorgeous track chosen by Juliet, it's America. On the first part of the journey, I was looking at all the life. There were plants and birds and rocks and things. There were sand and hills and rain. The first thing I met was a fly with a buzz and the sky. Desert. 
you can remember your name Cause there ain't no one more to give you no pain I do like that. It's terrific. Um, it's uh, it, There's just something about it. It doesn't do a lot, yet what it does, I absolutely love. It's so compelling. I found myself, when Terence asked me this morning, could you know, could I tell him the tracks that we wanted to do for the podcast? I, once I, I, I just thought of songs, I just, I just decided I'd pick the first two songs that popped into my head, mm. and I found myself whistling this for the whole day <laughs> afterwards. It's just so infectious. I just, it's got such a lovely sound to it. And it doesn't really, like I say, it's only, it doesn't have, you know, it's not the most structured song ever. It doesn't go to any, you know, amazing places. It doesn't have a middle eight or anything like that. And it's, um, and it's fab. And that is a, um, a horse with no name, originally written by Dewey Bunnell and recorded by the folk band, uh, folk rock band America. And it was their first, again, their first and most successful single. I feel a bit sad for them that nothing they ever did really kind of matched up to that afterwards. But no, it's wonderful. I love it. I love that. I too, I love that track so much. Just, Despite the lyrics telling us that there were plants and birds and rocks and things, I, I, I want to know what things, you know. And it was, well, I always heard that as trees, but oh. I don't know if that's if that's right or not. I, I mean, the lyrics are not, you know, none of it is high art, is it? Yeah, mm. it's excellent. They also tell us that the heat was hot, and I, I think, well, what did they expect it to be? But I do love it so <laughs> so, so very much. I saw America live in a one, in a wonderful setting, an outdoor festival on the shores of Lake Michigan in Milwaukee. Oh, wow. And it was a great setting. They were fantastic. And it was really, actually found it quite moving to hear uh, that track, A Horse With No Name, and tracks from my one of my favourite albums of all time, America's Homecoming, um, and they indeed they are they're one of my favorite bands of all time and uh, that 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 is wonderful mm. and and yeah i mean the, and you're right by the way i have been hearing that wrong mm. but um plants no, and I birds think... and rocks and things Absolutely, but the, so I've learned something today. But no, your thing about the, the heat was hot. It's right back to our obvious song lyrics, isn't it? And your your uh, the deathless observation that there's a jailbreak in town. Where is it? And yes. as you said, it's probably out of jail. That's in a fair assumption. So so yes, not all the great art always bears up to textual analysis. But never mind. No, it's a great track. Now, Lauren Hill, for whom we've both mm. expressed much admiration Absolutely. on this podcast previously. Well, we've played, well, I've picked one of her records previously, I you, think, to you, play. We you, like her very much. You did indeed. She's out on the road. Um, it's called The Miseducation of Lauren Hill 20th Anniversary Tour. 
I mean, I found it profoundly depressing that, that so <laughs> many of the bands we're talking about this evening, yeah, records that I remember from my teenage years, and I do not consider myself to be particularly advanced in years, are now celebrating 20 years oh, anniversary. Man. Travis, Radiohead, Gomez, Lauren Hill. She's on the European leg at the moment. She's going all around uh, the world, right through into 2019, the USA, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, genuine worldwide tour. Mm. But there's a problem. She's been turning up late on stage for many of these shows. Now, not now, not just five or ten minutes. Mm. In France this week, she showed up over two hours late. Um, the venue had a curfew, so she performed a 32-minute set. A couple of days yeah. later, Lauren Hill and a miseducation tour, they, it rolls up in Brussels once again, incredibly late. One hour and 40 minutes late on stage. She played for 40 minutes before the plugs were pulled, again because of the curfew. Most venues have curfews now well, as part yes, of their... absolutely, in the real world. Yeah, know. with licensing agreements with local authorities. This has been going on and on. Um, in February this year, she was three hours late for a show in Pittsburgh. She was due on at 8pm. She started the show at 11.19pm, as most fans were at the box office uh, queuing for refunds. Um, we, were, <laughs> we were talking about artists being seen as cool earlier and i think mm. we've definitely put lauren hill in that category oh yes very much so but this behavior isn't cool at all this is this is showing contempt for your fans jules it really is and um and you, you very kindly sent me a link to this story mm. the uh, I'd, I'd like the name of this site hiphopwired.com for all of your hip-hop wiring needs and i think i think it, it, it's a newswire for hip-hop um and uh, she has a bit of a track record for this and i very much enjoyed the fact that um the uh, the article that you sent me um it, it she has a lengthy track record so um so it said uh, previously uh, february the first 2017 news ms lauren hill arrives three hours late for concert God. in pittsburgh Water is wet, and uh, and then the follow up said um, the follow up article said um, Lauren Hill has been uh, running late in Europe. Apologises, Ms Hill is late, and water continues to be wet. Said uh, said the article. <laughs> I mean, it is ridiculous, and it is completely not cool. I mean, the miseducation of Lauren Hill. I love, love, love that album, and I do think it is a complete classic and i think it will stand the test of time it's a gorgeous album and you know a real work of art i think but um unfortunately um she i mean firstly this sounds ungallant but i don't mean it to i can't believe lauren hill is still only 43 <laughs> so it just goes to show she made that album when she was 23 years old which i think is a phenomenal achievement but you can't live your whole life on that um she did um she's offered this as a reason for her chronic lateness in the past um I don't quite know. I, I mean, I'll read this to you and I'll see what you think. I'm pretty sure what I know your reaction going to be because I know what my reaction was. <laughs> I don't show up to late. I don't show up late to shows because I don't care, and I have nothing but love with a capital L and respect for my fans. The challenge is aligning my energy with the time, oh, taking something that isn't easily classified or contained, and trying to make it available for others. I don't have an on slash off switch. I'm at my best when I'm open, rested, sensitive, Ugh. and liberated to express myself as truthfully as possible. For every performance that I've arrived too late, there have been countless others where I've performed in excess of two hours beyond what I'm contracted to do, pouring everything out on the stage. I mean, what I might do is I might just print this off and use this at work. So when I turn up late <laughs> to the office, I'll, um, I will just say to them, you know, I feel I feel I can say to them, you know, what I have is my energy and the challenges aligning my energy at the time. Taking something that isn't classified or contained. So, uh, I mean... It is a bit crap, isn't it? And and there are obviously 
I mean, after making that spectacular record, and there are a lot of artists who find it hard after they've made a, you know, we're talking about sort of making big records early on in your career and being successful, uh, you know, sort of quickly. There are some bands who really, and particularly solo artists as well, I think, who really struggle to know where to go next. What do you do when you've made a classic, basically? And actually, Lauren Hill, when you look at her career, has really, really, really struggled mm. to uh, to follow it up at all um she was in prison for tax evasion for three months in 2013 she's not terribly good at organizing her life lauren hill i don't think i have to be honest and um you know i don't know if it's energy or trackers or whatever it is um <laughs> she's released one studio album which is miseducation of lauren hill and one live album which is um well, it's it's not particularly. It was MTV Unplugged in 2002, yeah. so four years after the miseducation of Hill. People going, oh, can you carry up and release this, please? And um, she's not that concise when she performs live. How can I put this? So, um, so there's there's something about it that just I don't know what it is, but she doesn't. She seems to struggle with her life a bit, um, or rather, she seems to live life in a lot of directions at once. Um, she has six different children. Um, sort of, you know, in various different directions. Um, she's, um, I don't know. It's it's almost impossible to be able to get a handle it. But basically, you can't do that. You can't muck people about. And to be honest, if you're in a position whereby you've only released one record, which admittedly is a stonker of a record, but you release one record and one live album. It's not right, you're Joni Mitchell, love. I'm sorry, but you're <laughs> but you're not really. She has made it over to these shores. Um, she played in Birmingham. Um, yesterday, I think, or the day before, um, she, uh, according to the Birmingham Express and Star, um, she was only an hour late. Oh god! So, which is not too bad at all. Oh. Um, apparently, it was an extremely good gig, and yeah. she and she was and and she uh, did a, a, a cover of Frankie Valli's "Can't Take My Eyes Off You." She also did. Um, she did uh, to Zion. She did the whole album, and it said it was altogether a more humble and humane on her who took time to repeatedly thank her fans for two decades of support. I don't know whether it's Lauren Hill being up herself, or whether she just genuine, genuinely seems to struggle to put her life together. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's a bit of both. But you think by now. You, she'd have people around it that would go, look, love, you, you can't turn up two hours late for a gig when they've shut the venue. That's not really on. And, you know, if you want money to pay your taxes with, or rather not pay your taxes with, maybe maybe you need to start getting a bit more on top of it. And maybe she is too self-defeating to have had the brilliant career that we thought she might have done. It's actually quite sad because when she released it at the age of 23, it really did seem like she had the world at her feet. And it just hasn't happened. That statement of hers you read out, which I, I hadn't know, seen before, I, I think it shows a sort of condescension to fans, a sort, a sort of disdain, yeah. um, completely out of touch with the reality that people have to contend with. She, she seems oblivious to this. People have to contend with the last train leaving, you know, eleven thirty from Waterloo or wherever. The babysitter back at home, and maybe the prospect of. The the, the the person that's gone to see her having to get up early for work the next morning. Yeah, Not a worry, of course, when you've got a limo or a helicopter yeah. to take you yeah. back to your hotel, but a well, ruined it's, nation. It's, it's, a it's a disconnection from mm -hmm. how the real world is, isn't it, really? And, um, yeah, I can imagine that the income from radio play for Fuji's stuff is still probably, and for our own records, is still probably pretty high. Mm. I still hear do wop that thing out and about, you know, sometimes, not very often, but occasionally, and um, an X Factor, I've heard that before. And, uh, yeah, like you say, even though she has obviously made a complete 
holics of her affairs if she ended up in prison for tax evasion mm. or rather non-payment of tax you know like you say it's, it's, it doesn't smack of someone that really lives in the real world and I, I do worry for Lauren Hill when she does eventually collide with the real world which is she continues to behave like this I suspect <laughs> she probably will at some point um, it might not be very pleasant and I am sorry for that because you know I, I could forgive Lauren Hill a bit because she has you know and, and to be fair the world of hip hop and rap Loads of those stars are famous. You know, it, it is a culture thing to some extent that people turn up late all the time. I don't really know why that is, but you know, I I I think that record's a stunning record. And you know, I I, I don't know how I missed the fact she was doing this because I probably would have gone. Although having said that, I probably would have also been very cross. I would suspect. Mm. So um, so you but could it's take interesting. some knitting with you or something mm. to well, while away I'm... the hours. It's fifty years since the death of the children's author Enid Blyton. And Mm. um, 2019 will see a new TV series based on Mallory Towers. Um, But should we be pulping those Enid Blyton books? (laughs) That's next after Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. One morning I woke up and I knew A new day a new way and new eyes was
such a wonderful track. In in essence, they really only made two great albums as a trio in 1969 and then with Neil Young as a foursome in 1970. But what two albums they are. Uh, Absolute Mount Rushmore's of rock history. The opening track of 1970's Deja Vu album. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and Carry On. I do like that. It's CSMY. What can possibly go wrong? Yeah, a lot did, as we know. Um, The first, the first books I ever read as a child were written by Enid Blyton, uh, the Mystery of series, and of course the Famous Five. And I found all these books took me into a magical world where children, um, rather similar to Swallows and Amazons as well, were able and allowed to roam free, setting off to camp out for days at a time as 12-year-olds, airily telling their parents that they'd be back at the weekend. And the parents would say, oh, well, ask Cook to pack you some sandwiches then, dear, you know. Um, I suppose in retrospect, these books may have had a negative influence on me because... In, in, in many ways, I could identify with the world in which the characters lived, but there were new discoveries. All the baddies in Enid Blyton books tended to be foreigners with odd mm. accents. All working-class people had a very poor education, and one was one was to be wary of them. Sure, they, they worked as maids or gardeners, but they were not to be trusted. Women were, mm. were, were very firmly second best to men and had to, had to defer to them. The only female with some zip is George in The Famous Five, but that's only because she's got short hair and pretends to be a boy. Mm. So, Jules, with the enlightenment of the modern era, should I be throwing all my Enid Blyton books on the bonfire? Well, and and like you, Blyton was a huge part of my childhood, strangely. I know it was a little while after your childhood, and you'd think the world had moved on. And yet, I was an enormous consumer of the Secret Seven books. I loved the idea. The Famous Five I did quite like, and particularly George as well, obviously one Mm. of my many role models when I was younger. But um, I preferred the Secret Seven, because for me, there was more of an urban tinge. Mm. They're uh, they're sort of, you know, self-appointed detectives. Kids detectives that worked out of a shed in someone's back garden that actually got occasionally into trouble and tried to follow people through car parks. I thought that was extremely cool, <laughs> and I really enjoyed that. And I also liked the adventure series as well, Island of Adventure. Mm. Um, I, I always forget what they're all called. I don't know, Shopping Trolley of Adventure. I'm not sure. Anyway, they were quite they were quite good as well. And I just I really liked them. And I, as you say, they were all a world that I got really mm. sucked into. And you know, being seven or eight. It's amazing what you don't notice at the time. And I'm very lucky that I grew up as a feminist, basically, <laughs> after having read Any Blight. Because when you look back on it now, you think, oh, man, you know, like you say, there mm. is there is unpleasant classism, racism. You know, they're not they are they are worrying and they hint to the author mm. having rather worrying views. And it's almost like I feel like everything in my life that I really love gets completely ruined. Mm. So so, you know, famous, you know, Enid Blyton turns out to be, you know, quite culturally intolerant, amongst other things. Everyone that raced in the Tour de France is on drugs. <laughs> um, you know, every, everything gets ruined in the end. Uh, Morrissey is now, you know, beyond awful. the pale. Mm. Well, quite. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to use, to use the F word, if you mm. see what I mean, but it's, it's very it's very difficult um 
you know when you look back on this amazing what you take what face value at the time when you look back on it with slightly more adult eyes and brain you think mm, that's that's not great and in a way that's what's so worrying about it you think god how many people that read in Brighton when they were younger have grown up to be beaten up by their husbands because they feel that's what they deserve to have mm. it's really worrying it's, i know that sounds alarmist but yeah i don't know i don't know if if I don't know if I want my children reading them. Although, having said that, all of that kind of terrible stuff was completely lost on me. I must have been quite dumb as a seven or eight-year-old. I thought it was quite bright. Clearly not, because I didn't notice any of this stuff. I just thought it was really cool that these kids tried to solve crimes. I thought that was dead good, and I would still do the same thing from my own shed if I had one. So, mm-hmm. I don't I don't really know. It, you know, you could say it's of its time. And, you know, I was reading these books in the 80s and, I, and, and early 90s, and I thought they were great. So good storytelling stands the test of time that is true but should good could should good is good storytelling standing the test of time enough to make it okay for very backward prejudice to also stand the test of time i don't think so they, they were they were beautifully written it's a very difficult question about how we should react when revisiting the past in culture movies plays books music enid blyton i think rather like her contemporary Agatha Christie, that they were themselves children of the British Empire, the Raj, you know, and were educated to have a, a strong sense of um, moral propriety, but linked to an old-fashioned concept of the British as superior and foreigners to be dismissed as wicked and cunning. I think that was commonplace in mm. in the sort of 20s and 30s, 1920s and 30s. Because it's, it's easy to forget how old her early stuff is. And actually, the stuff that I got really into was her slightly later work, in fairness. Mm. But, th- th- of course, the, the great question is whether we should then shun that author's work. Mm. That's quite the dilemma. And like you, it I'm is. conflicted and confused because even now, occasionally, on a rainy or snowy winter's afternoon, and I've got an hour to spare... I'll go to one of my um, groaning bookcases mm. and I'll pick off an Enid Blyton mystery of the, you know, the missing necklace or something and yes. happily spend an hour or two reliving my eight-year-old self with Enid mm. Blyton. Absolutely. And, you know, now I'm quite tempted and go, what mysteries did they solve in The Secret Seven? <laughs> there was one where Jack left and there was a rival Secret Seven called oh, The Secret no. Six and it all went horribly wrong. But then everything was reconciled in the end. Oh, but um, yes, They all flew it, around on bikes, didn't they, The Secret they Seven? They did, yeah. I think. The Secret mm. Seven were extremely urban. Mm. I enjoyed how urban they were, I must admit. As a child that grew up in a fairly suburban thing... They, um, they, uh, they, uh, you know, they, they were called. They, they, I love their titles as well. The first one's called the Secret Seven, the Secret Seven Adventure. Well done, Secret Seven. The Secret <laughs> Seven on the trail. Go ahead, Secret Seven. Good work, Secret Seven. There are some that are positive. Secret Seven went through, and there's. Um, the good old Secret Seven, shock for the Secret Seven. If you read them in sequence, it was very happy, and then it's a bit worrying, and then it's all right at the end. Um, she did 15 Secret Seven books, which I didn't mm. realise. And um, I very much... Um, I very much enjoy... Um, I love how Wikipedia plays everything with a straight bat. It's always entertaining. Um, Jack's sister Susie and her best friend Binky often make an appearance in the books. They hate the Secret Seven and delight in plain tricks designed to humiliate them, although much of this is fueled by their almost obsessive desire to belong to the society. Well, don't we all find ourselves in that position? We do, and also um, your description of Secret Seven books as everything being lovely, something goes wrong, and then it all comes right in the end. Wouldn't it be great if life actually 
worked out like that. So that, it that, that certainly, it everything would. would be fine. Um, when you're not reading Secret Seven books, um, where might we find you this week? Absolutely. Um, we have, so when I'm not when I'm not solving mysteries hmm. from my shed, when I'm not, um, it's almost like the Scooby Doo. When I'm not solving a mystery that's actually an insurance fraud by the guy that owns the building in a sheet, um, you can find me. Where can you find me over the next few days? Well, I've been. Oh, you can find me um, at High Fest, Hastings Illustration Festival. It's oh, fifth wow. and final iteration taking place in Hastings this weekend. You can find me in the print works. There will be lots of stalls in the print works on Saturday and Sunday in various workshops and fun things to do and uh, you can find me in the corner from two until six on sunday afternoon playing all kinds of records as many as i can carry basically so uh, you can browse and be entertained by me djing i'm hoping to do indie wonderland we've had a couple of weeks off but i'm hoping to do that next week it will be a pre-recorded show as i'm at nadine shah in brighton so very much looking forward to that perhaps we'll discuss that next mm. week um so yeah that's pretty much what's going on for me in the last few, in the last next few days rather oh, okay um thanks to you for listening yeah, and, indeed, and also you. Oh, uh, uh, well, yeah, all right, and, and you, you, and, and, and you, you as you. well. And thanks to executive producers Rona and Hilly. Always. Um, now it's a kind of indie supergroup to play us out, Jules. Yes, absolutely, and, and possibly even more super than the groups they were already in, mm. which were pretty super in their own right, really. Um, prompted by a lovely picture of a friend of mine on Facebook grinning with Kim Deal, who's also grinning, in fairness. <laughs> I thought I'd play this. Um, the Breezers, they were a bit of a super group. You should say, Kim Deal of the Pixies and her sister Kelly and Tanya Donnelly of the Throwing Muses. Um, like I say, they're quite the... And Josephine Wiggs as well, um, who was in The Perfect Disaster before that as well. Um, a chap called Jim McPherson, um, who's been through sort of various other bands as well, I think. Um, actually, funnily enough... Um, Tanya Donnelly wasn't in the Breeders for uh, for very long, I don't think, particularly. Mm. They've had a number of lineup changes. Kim Deal's the one constant in them. Um, last splash of their 1993 album, that's had the uh, the the 20-year anniversary in recent years and the, the, the deluxe treatment, and it gets reissued on vinyl every so often because it is a, a storming album. Um, they had a, a few years off after that, and they've come back with a few a few records recently. Their, their album that was released earlier this year was extremely good, actually, much better than you'd expect a kind of late-period album to be really um but this uh, from last splash you could pick almost any any song off last splash it's always tempting to pick cannonball because that is their their kind of anthem that everybody knows but i'm gonna i'm gonna pick the um the last single that was released from this album because i think it's great it's got a nice hawaiian sound which i like this is the breeders and this is no aloha no bye no aloha
You have been listening to a DAC Media production. The Secret Seven Society was one that Peter and Janet had invented. They thought it was great fun to have a little band of boys and girls who knew the password and who wore the badge.